The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry. This week, we're diving into India's water crisis. The country's fourth largest city, Chennai, has already effectively run dry, while shortages elsewhere are contributing to farmer suicides, urban migration, and could soon inflict serious damage on the economy too. Joining us on the line to discuss all of this and more is our India columnist, Yuna Galani. Yuna, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Anthony. Great to be here. Well, thanks for taking time out. I know it's in the evening over there. But look, let's, let's jump in. So let's start. Actually, I think that the news today is actually not about water scarcity, but about um, actually uh, flash floods. Is that right? Yeah, well, uh, Mumbai is uh, large parts of the city are underwater. We've had the driest June in about five years. But in the last 48 hours, we've had torrential rains. And this is all part of what people say is climate change. You know, in the cities, you'll have fewer rain days. But when it does rain, it will pour. And as you alluded to, um, uh, just a few, uh, you know, just just earlier this month, we've seen uh, the car making city of uh, well, basically, India's Detroit, Chennai, um, is is facing uh, uh, quite the opposite problems. You know, they've basically run out of water, as you said, yeah. and and the problem here is basically the same as elsewhere in India. It's been a slow start to the monsoon, arguably a result of of, of rising temperatures and climate change, in an already water scarce country. I mean, India basically has something like one-fifth of the world's population on 3% of the freshwater, which basically means it's more water-scarce than China and only slightly better off than Syria. And I mean, essentially, the government is saying, like, they think 21 cities will run out of groundwater by 2020. I mean, that's next year. So what you mentioned about Mumbai was also an issue with uh, Chennai. I think four or five years ago, it suffered horrendous uh, flooding. I think more than 500 people were killed. 1.8 million of its, what, is it 18, 20 million population mm. was displaced. Lots of economic damage. And you're right, this this is, I mean, okay, India, parts of India are places where you will have monsoons, which of course are going to cause problems. You will have drought as well because of the heat, but it is getting worse. But why is it that we're seeing it getting so much worse now? What What's changed in the past few years? Climate change aside, I think that's a big reason for for um, a lot of the changes in precipitation, at least. But there are also issues on the ground. So what's changed, do you think, uh, from your reporting that shows and explains why Chennai especially, but also the rest of India, is is suffering from so much drought and why the cities are suffering so much? I mean, let's let's start with just Chennai. What What have you found out there? Okay, well, I mean, look, I I think the issues in Chennai uh, are similar to what we are seeing elsewhere, even in uh, parts of uh, Maharashtra, which is the capital, which is home to the capital or the financial capital of Mumbai. I mean, basically, we have a combination of water scarcity, poor crop choice and wasteful irrigation methods. I mean, most of the water in India is used by farmers, like in many other uh, still developing countries. Um, And, you know, farmers here in India are growing things like sugarcane and rice, which are both water intensive crops, because the government is assuring them a price that generates a high return. And so essentially, um, when India exports uh, sugar, which it occasionally does, and it exports rice, it's the world's largest exporter of rice, it's effectively exporting its water. And the reason farmers can do that is because, you know, the, and the farmers here are p- pumping out like huge amounts of groundwater, twice as yeah. much as you do in country like China, which is of a similar size. And the reason they can do that is because they're paying basically little or nothing for electricity. Right. Also, and also probably also probably little or nothing for the water, I would assume. 
No, I, oh, no, water is basically free. Right. So that's that's another big part of the problem, economically speaking. If you don't price water at the proper level, you're going to use it as if it's a free resource you don't need to care about. Same with electricity, right? And so you've got a double problem. No, no, absolutely. And I mean, actually, Anthony, I'd like to, you sort of talked about it, but I'd like to come back to the sort of, you know, the human consequences of this. Right. Um, you know, like there are some big numbers out there, financial numbers, you know, the government think tank says that this crisis will eventually cost India 6% of GDP. Now, that's a hard number, but really, it's pretty hard to fathom. But the human effects are things that we can already see and feel. And these are the ones we have to worry about. You said Syria. I mean, it's chilling to remember that drought contributed to the social instability that right. preceded the current crisis in war-torn Syria. And it was just a few weeks ago, I went to this um, kind of quasi-water refugee camp outside. It's a few hours outside of Mumbai. Um, and what I found there was 4,000 people living alongside 10,000 animals and mostly farmers living with their, you know, their assets, which is Right. which are the animals, because they don't have any water and fodder. And, and, and the flip side of that is we can already see migrants arriving in the financial capital, having, flee, you know, having like fled their parched villages because they can't work there, they can't live there. Um, and we can already see both of these things happening. Let's, let's look at I mean, that, that refugee camp you mentioned. I mean, how, how did it set up? I mean, fair enough, I, I get the point that, that farmers are fleeing their areas, whether to go to the city or elsewhere. But why do they go there? What, what prompted that? refugee camp to set up? Well, essentially, um, th this was a camp that was set up by a quite amazing woman called Chetna Saina. She was the co-founder, no, she was a co-chair of the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2018. So she's right. a kind of, she runs a rural cooperative bank and she could see that uh, many people in the area that she runs this rural cooperative bank, like a, basically a micro lender, um, she could see that people were facing this financial stress because what happens is that when farmers don't have any money, what the first thing they do is they sell their animals. And she wanted to stop that from happening. So right. she wanted to prevent the need for farmers to sell their top assets. So she set up this camp and it helped actually prod the government into doing something similar. So now that area is full of camps, including one set up by the government, because the need is so much. And where, where does, so if, if, if water and fodder are the problems then, obviously, for, for the farmers, how does the refugee camp source that? Are, are they in a water-rich area or are they, are they bussing it in or, or no, how are they getting or trucking it in? Well, it's a great question. I mean, at great expense is the answer. Um, I mean, this camp is costing about $300,000 a month to run. They're bussing in huge trucks of fodder, huge trucks of water. I mean, the only revenue they're making back is the dairy they collect from the cow's milk. So right. it's, uh, it's it, I mean, it's not sustainable. It's not the sort of money, you know, these foundations have better money, better things to spend their money on, but they're having to just literally keep people alive. And it's a great right. cost. But the problem Problem in Maharashtra is basically, which is the state, um, which is the state in which, which Mumbai is in, is epidemic. Uh, we've had about forty thousand agricultural workers and farmers commit suicide over the over over wow. a decade. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's the official crime record number. So the real number is probably much yeah. higher. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, so what else can the government do then? I mean, this gets gets to I think what the thing you pointed out at the beginning to an extent. But what what can governments do here to um, whether it's state, city, or local, to um, to try and rectify the situation? Fine, they can jump in once they see someone else is doing something, as you mentioned with with with, with the camps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, Anthony, it's a great question, and I I think it's one I should be asking you because. I mean, you've looked a lot of, uh, at the governance issues that surround this, and we sit on opposite sides of the world. Yeah. 
But India is so far behind in sort of it's uh, in thinking about what the solutions are. I mean, I think people here have only just woken up to the problem that um, we don't really know what those are. I mean, obviously, there's there's a poor management of water bodies. There's a lot of leakage um, and, and a lot of like some of the solutions. They, see, they seem to be crazily simple. Is that right? Um, some could be. So, yes, certain things like like leak, sorting out leaks, you should you should just be done immediately. I mean, the problem is cost, of course. But there are technologies that can allow you to find leaks, to fix leaks without having to dig up entire tracts of pipes. I mean, maybe all the pipes need um, replacing in some places. In America, for example, some of them are more than 100 years old. In fact, I think DC, Washington, DC dug one up a year or two ago that was from the time of soon after the Revolutionary Wars. So there are some very wow. old stuff out there, but also some of the new pipes aren't as good either. Um, so stuff like that you can do and you can use technology to do it. And you mentioned earlier that the idea of you know um, uh, poor choice of crops. That's another issue that you see across so many different places around the world where um, irrigation is used. As opposed to, say in Britain, for example, very little is, of, of water is used for irrigation um, because they'll use rainwater, right? So you don't actually have to ship it anywhere. Um, but you know, most places are using 70-80% of their water for, um, of, of their treated water often, for, um, uh, for agriculture. I think it's 80% in India, which is among the higher but not the worst. But there are certain things you like. Just improving irrigation is a great idea too. Whether it's drip irrigation, or even, I, I spoke to someone recently who came up with a really good, cheap design that you can put down each year, rip out and replace. It's really cheap. It's great. The problem is all that does is it's, it, it, it may well drop how much water you use on a particular product, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll change the product you use. Because he showed me a picture of a farmer in... Um, one of the southern states of Colorado, on a Colorado basin. I think, I think it was it was uh, Arizona. I think and he said, "Oh, he's growing alfalfa, which is a terrible crop to grow in a very hot region." Um, I said, "Well, what's he doing now that he's got better irrigation? He said, oh, he's going to he's going to grow more alfalfa in the field next door." It's like, well, that only sort of half solves the problem. So yes, some of the issues look simple. Let's get in better irrig irrigation. Let's use uh, less water. Let's pay for water properly. Let's replace the pipes. But there is a mind shift that's needed, like you were saying. Certain crops should not be grown in certain places, or shouldn't be grown uh, in such in such scale, for example. And that's that's harder. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'm worried about when it comes to some of the more costly solutions. I mean, uh, Israel has been a bit of a pioneer in terms of turning its water scarcity. It's extremely water mm. scarce, and you know, and 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 making the most of its situation. I mean, I think they do now grow mangoes in the desert uh, in some places, but they, uh, you know, they've invested so much money into desalination, and they have found a way out, or, or at least they look like they're finding a way out of their their water shortage problem. Um, and that is the situation that it's, it's, it's hard to see that being replicated in India. You know, this is yeah. Israel, a tiny, rich, relatively rich country, um, very small. So water is like governed by one state. I mean, in, it, it, by one authority in India, exactly. you have uh, water is a state issue. Um, Modi, uh, Narendra Modi, the prime minister has basically, you know, he's just been reelected. And in one of his first, uh, public broadcasts that he does monthly uh, since being re-elected, he's dedicated it to uh, water conservation. He's basically urging Indians to conserve water. And he's tried to sort of restructure all the various ministries that sort of deal with water into one authority in the hope that they can kind of address this enormous issue, which includes sort of polluted rivers and, yeah. you know, unclean drinking water and all sorts of things. But it's very hard to see how you can do that in a country uh, as, as, as loud and um, sort of where so much power is devolved.
No, that's right. I mean, I could go across so many parts of the world where that happens. It's even happened in the Colorado River Basin, seven states in the U.S. plus Mexico. We'll leave Mexico to one side. That's a different agreement. But the water rights have come from like when when um, prospectors went out there in the sort of 1800s, and whoever used the word water first got to keep it. And a lot of that still exists. So, and on top of that was imposed a, a, a sort of sharing arrangement between the seven states a hundred years ago, which now doesn't seem tenable because it's based on old numbers of how much water there was and what was being used for and who owned it. And then you move across to, say, I don't know, Cape Town, for example, which faced, you know, got a lot more play, I think, than Chennai last year when it was facing yeah. its own day zero. Um, of course, you know, Cape Town, I mean, we'll leave the racism aside, but it's clearly there. But it's, on the it's easy to relate, relate to. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, I think I think that, does, you know, was well, may, maybe, maybe more people <laughs> have, no people have indicated, either way, 4 million people versus 20 million people, there's, there's a reason why Chennai should be more in the news. But in any event, yeah. if you look there, it's a similar issue, I think, to what you're saying in India on the governance level, which is you know, the, the national government controls some of the policies on um, demand. Uh, the uh, city controls some of it on supply and the state gets involved as well and they're run by different parties who don't get on with each other um, and that means that if, if you don't really talk with each other properly and if you don't sort out an overall I'm going to use an awful phrase um, as sort of water speak, <laughs> a one water solution which is the water doesn't belong in one state doesn't belong in one country doesn't belong to just one industry it should all be looked at as owned by the entire watershed river basin rain basin whatever you want to call it and that it's then allocated and thought through and used properly based on the right environmental and um, and, and human needs um, and that's hard to do because as you said lots of people want to get involved and Israel is a great example and you're right it's small and it devolved authority to uh, over water to one institution effectively and, right. it, and it, 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 you know, it helps that it's a newer step. Well, actually, India, of course, is the same age, so I'm going to take that back. But <laughs> it, it helps that they said, OK, we need to base water, uh, base our state on our water usage. So they came up with all these plans, some of which were overdone, I think, in the 40s, 50s and 60s. But they then, since then, have got into um, a lot of water reuse. They reuse most of their water. Yes, desalination is also being mm -hmm. used. But the combi combination of what they've done means that they have managed to reduce their, the, the, the how much of their economy relies on um, agriculture. I think it's 2% now. Um, the amount of people wow. working in agriculture is small, whereas I think in India it's, what, half the population? I mean, India is half the population, so it's really nowhere close. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I would just say this probably to, to end is that I think that out of all of the many issues that I look and think about uh, in, in India and uh, in terms of like the economic sort of uh, tail risks or whatever you want to call them, this is the one that the more I learn about it is the one that scares me the most. And when I go around and I talk to, uh, you know, the sort of the big financial cheeses here and and, and people who are working in the space, it, um, they're all worried about it too. Um, and a lot of them are sort of doing, you know, doing a lot of work in this area, but it's not enough. And um, yeah, this is a, this is a really, you know, this is a country of 1.3 billion people. You do not want to have a country of water refugees because that's going to be too much. Absolutely disastrous, yes. Well, you know, thanks for coming on and talking to us all. This is absolutely fascinating. Admittedly, I'm a water geek, so I love this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> but look, uh, considering what you just said and how I think about it, I think the chances of us talking about this again, whether on India or Asia or even more globally, uh, are pretty high. So again, you know, thanks for coming on the show. Very interesting stuff. Thanks, Anthony.
Okay, folks, that's our show for this week. Una Galani, thanks again for coming on. Much appreciated. I extend my gratitude, as always, to the producers, Freddie Joyner, Rush Shoulder, and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.